It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. What? Another Bible geek already? I gotta listen to this again? Well, actually, you don't have to listen to it. Uh, I'm not so lucky I gotta do it, but actually, I uh, thoroughly enjoy it, and you should, too, if what you're interested in is... uh, better knowledge of the Bible and an enlightened look at it. Uh, As uh, I think most listeners realize, uh, though this podcast takes a critical look at the Bible, that is not condemnatory criticism. It's like literary or historical criticism, namely analysis. Uh, It doesn't really matter where you're at, atheist or believer, believer in the Bible or not, as long as you're fascinated with the Bible and would love to uh, find out uh, possible solutions for puzzling problems in it, this is the place for you. I got to push a couple of things. Uh, Got some new books out. One of them is Judaizing Jesus. Uh, Another is uh, When Gospels Collide which very much embodies the Bible Geek approach, showing you how a lot of contradictions are actually good, not bad. They're clues to deeper understanding of the Bible, uh, not, uh, in fact, you know, that's a very ancient approach. Uh, Origen of Alexandria said that in the early third century, that uh, when there, he says there's hundreds, I think maybe even said there are thousands of historical uh, contradictions and uh, falsehoods in the Gospels alone, but that that's all right. Those are little red lights blinking to tell the reader to look deeper because there's some allegorically determined meaning. Well, I don't go for that. I uh, I think that's really an uncontrollable Uh, undisciplined approach to the Bible that makes it into a ventriloquist dummy. You're just reading ideas into it instead of out of it. Uh, But there is a point there because um, the uh, contradictions between the Gospels and I'd I'd say other places too, but the book is about the Gospels. It it shows that these are uh, by and large editorial changes made to make a new point, a different one than the previous evangelist was making. And I uh, I found over the decades that boy does that shed a floodlight on the Bible, and I hope you'll agree. Anyway, also a couple of anthologies of essays that John Loftus and I edited and wrote some of. One of them is uh, the Varieties of Jesus Mythicism. I'm afraid I really hogged that one. We have uh, about uh, 14 contributors with 
essays from all sorts of different mythicist perspectives, and there are many of them. Um, I wrote three of these and, uh, and, and the introduction, but uh, there's plenty of other people too. And uh, God and Horrendous Suffering, which is also out now, and uh, that has to do with uh, theodicy. You know, can you really believe in a provident God, a good God in the face of all the horrors of the world? And I think you'll find that pretty fascinating, too, my essay. And that one is called Theodicy, the Idiocy. You'll see what I mean. But let's get into those questions. There are a number of them. The first from Alex, who requests a Welsh accent. The only way I know to do that is with my terrible Richard Burton imitation. In the Gospel of Nicodemus, a.k.a. Acts of Pilate, it says that Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus by himself. In the canonical Gospel of John, Jesus is buried by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. In a Gospel about and supposedly written by Nicodemus, why would it not state that he assisted with the burial? I think the Gospel of Nicodemus is probably a later construction than the Gospel of John, which makes it strange that it would exclude one of the few instances when Nicodemus is actually mentioned in the New Testament. Thoughts or rationalizations or wild guesses. Uh, uh, yeah, that is pretty strange. Uh, my guess is that somebody named it the Gospel of Nicodemus, um, because he's not mentioned in it, in a, and, and ascribing it to Nicodemus was sort of a way of uh, putting him back in there. I, I don't know, though. You, you got an excellent point, but that's all I can think of. That, oh, well, uh, yeah, yeah, he, he was involved, uh, after all, uh, so to get John's gospel out of a tight spot, uh, he, he was the author. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. Uh, that's pretty lame. I, I do not have more of a cogent answer, though that makes some sense to me. Uh, so you, if you uh, come up with anything, Alex, please do tell me, and I will be glad to credit you even in prison if it comes to that. Yeah, sharp-eyed, nice going. Uh, see, this is Leo from the UK. I was wondering what examples we have of textual reconstructions created through the methods of textual criticism that match subsequent discoveries of texts. I believe I've heard that there are examples of reconstructions of the Old Testament based on the Septuagint and others that were confirmed by discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, yeah, that's right, I can think of a couple of them. Uh, well, uh, three offhand. In Deuteronomy 32, according to the Masoretic te text, it says uh, uh, when God uh, divided up, when El Elyon divided up the, the nations, uh, he uh, did so according to the number of the sons of men. Uh, what is that supposed to mean? You're dividing the sums, sons of men according to the number of the sons of men. I, sort of a weird redundancy. But uh, what do you know? I'm not sure if people had suggested this one before, but uh, the Septuagint, I believe, and certainly the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, version, has according to the number of the sons of God. Now we're talking. 
uh, that uh, that makes perfect sense. The idea that there were 70, as we elsewhere hear, sons of God, uh, godlings, lesser gods, and uh, El Elyon, God Most High, the chief of them, uh, he decided that each one of these sons should have a fiefdom to rule great or small, and so he made enough countries so that each one could have one, and then it goes on to say that Yahweh it chose Israel. Uh, and then later on, of course, in the Deuteronomic reform, uh, theologians decided, nah, let's be monotheistic and say that Yahweh and El Elyon were the same deity. So the Hebrew God is the only God, and the rest Who were the sons of uh, God? Well, it's just a fancy way of saying angels. I think that is not the case. Uh, it was just an attempt to demote them into created beings uh, so you could get rid of uh, polytheism. Okay, another one is in 1 Samuel when it talks about uh, Saul and what he did to merit being the first official king. There was one before him uh, named Abimelech who tried to be king, but his regime didn't really last, so they usually don't count him. Uh, but um, uh, Saul heard about this, uh, this emergency cry from people in uh, Jabesh-Gilead uh, who were being leaned on by Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. And uh, they, um, uh, and they, he he was trying to force them to. Well, let me see if I can find that iron thing. I'm sure, I can. Uh, he was tried uh, to uh, subjugate them and put his mark on them by mutilating them. Oh, what a nice guy! And uh, oh, let's see. Okay. Samuel. Israel asks for a king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's the. Uh, yeah, uh, here's First Samuel 11, uh, one and following. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash. Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus put disgrace upon all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, hey, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Um... Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What ails the people that they're weeping? So they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God came mightily upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. 
He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Uh, then the dread of Yahweh fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel were three hundred thousand, and the men of Judah thirty thousand. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Gilead, of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. Uh, and so on. So they do mass and fight him, and, and that's it for uh, Nahash. Well, scholars have thought, wait a minute, uh, this seems uh, kind of incomplete. There seems to be a hole in this thing, uh, because every other time in the Deuteronomic history, you know, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, when a foreign king is mentioned, he, there's a formula of introduction. Now, uh, Andy, king of the, the Mayberryites, uh, whatever, uh, Putin, king of the Russians, whatever, uh, of the children of Russia. I would say, why is uh, Nahash, in a pretty juicy story, not given that intro? I bet he was. And what the heck was the deal of putting out their eyes anyway? Uh, I bet there was an explanation. Well, one big reason for thinking so was that in Josephus's summary of, of Israelite Jewish history uh, in his Antiquities of the Jews, he has what sounds sort of like a paraphrase of what turned out to be missing. Uh, maybe it was actually a quote, I don't remember. Uh, but in his version, it does say, Jabesh, king of the children of Ammon. And it explains uh, what he was doing, that that was his signature mark of submission and so on. Uh, and uh, so it, what do you know? It turned up in, uh, in um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it turned out, yep, somebody had accidentally omitted this little paragraph. Okay, it's not earth-shaking, but it is the restoration of a missing piece of the Bible. I, I, I say that's pretty nifty. Um, another one. How tall was Goliath? I just wrote a story about Goliath, by the way. Um, see, um, it's called the Tomb of the Titan. Anyway, enough self-promotion for the moment. Uh, and in the the uh, Masoretic text, it says that he was, uh, well, the converted, nine and a half feet tall. Holy mackerel, that's big. But the Septuagint uh, was based on a uh, an earlier Hebrew text that didn't read the same way, so we didn't have the Hebrew with it for a long time. Uh, and uh, it said it, that he was the equivalent of six and a half feet tall. That would still make him pretty gigantic and would fit the story, whereas David is a shrimpy little guy. Uh, and uh, and yet he triumphs over this guy through uh, strategy and so on. Um, but uh, was that some guess to make the story more realistic? No, because the Dead Sea Scroll copy of First uh, uh, Samuel agrees with the Septuagint. Nine, uh, I'm sorry, six and a half feet tall. Uh, and uh, so scholars in, in a couple of those cases figured something's wrong there. 
And sure enough, text discoveries prove that out. Um, let's see, uh, what else are we talking about? The, uh, uh, the, the New Testament, I think, right? Uh, are there examples of this uh, for the New Testament or apocryphal materials from around the 2nd century? Uh, to tell you the truth, I don't know. I mean, the, the only thing that uh, would be a good example if we could find very early manuscripts, the only thing I can think of is uh, the, uh, the Ignatian epistles, uh, which exist in three different manuscript forms. Uh, there are the shorter texts, the medium texts, and the longer texts. What is going on there? Uh, well, uh, the uh, it looks like people kept adding to them, and also I think there's a pretty good argument for saying that none of them are actually original, that there were. Uh, the Oh, yeah, and uh, I should say that in the longer recension, there are double the number of them. There's 14 of them there, uh, and there's longer material. Well, it, it kind of looks like people kept adding to them, and maybe they weren't written by Ignatius of Antioch at all, but that's a different matter. It has to do with the, the internal logic of the thing. Uh, but um, John Calvin was already saying that the 14, that couldn't be right, and that half of them were fake. Uh, one reason for that is uh, there's a letter in there supposedly from Ignatius to the Virgin Mary, and of course ooh, that would have been a bit inconvenient for Protestants, but the modern scholars figured he was right that this is, uh, you know, people kept adding to it. But again, you can't really be sure until somebody finds a much earlier uh, manuscript of those letters, and uh, maybe they have, but I've never heard of it. Um, uh, apocryphal stuff, I don't know if there's any way of penetrating the chaos there. Uh, we're just talking about the Gospel of Nicodemus. There are various versions of that in various languages that have different readings. I, I don't know if anybody pre I suppose you'd find um, at least uh, conjectures about that in J.K. Eliot's New Testament Apocrypha. And uh, he had more material to work with than M.R. James did in the original edition of the New Testament Apocrypha. Uh, but I, I would refer you to that. I just don't happen to know offhand. Um, what, other oh, what other empirical evidence do we have of the method of textual criticism? Uh, well, all of that is, most of that is empirical in that it's a matter of uh, comparing manuscripts both in the the um, Greek and Hebrew, uh, and loads of foreign language versions, and there there are just a slew of them. And what you have to do there, of course, is to try to figure out the uh, chronological order. Like, is this an early manuscript or a much later copy? Uh, paleography is one of the um, the uh, methods there, which just means, you know, ancient writing. And the idea there is that on the assumption that writing styles, that is handwriting styles change uh, over the, the centuries, that you can, if you have enough 
works and manuscripts that you can date from external evidence or whatever, uh, then uh, and if if a certain undated biblical manuscript looks like that that was written in in the more distinctive style of this or that period, but matches up with that of a datable manuscript, then you you have to assume, well, this is contemporaneous with it. There's a bit of a problem, though, because since we're talking about copies of scripture, there was the tendency among scribes to uh, copy it in old style lettering. Uh, kind of like wanting to have the these and thous in the King James Version, or black letter in Luther Bibles sometimes. And uh, so it, it's it's difficult. The, the uh, manuscript may be older than the... Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, how, how would that be? Um, uh, later than, than you would think from the handwriting style because they're trying to ape that of an earlier, more sacred period. But once you come up with a timeline, uh, you can then group them into families of manuscripts, that is, um, genealogical lines of where these uh, manuscripts were copied. And so they speak of an Alexandrian tradition, because there were loads of copies there. And I believe the three oldest we have, Codex uh, Sinaiticus, or Sinaiticus, I guess, uh, from the fourth century, and Codex Vaticanus from the same batch, uh, they they, um, were from the Alexandrian orbit, and Codex... Alexandrinus from the the uh, the next century, the fourth fifth uh, century, I guess. Uh, that seems to be an Alexandrian one, and there there are like common readings throughout. Whereas with um, oh um, the so-called Western text that um, you you have Latin and Greek versions of. There are different readings that many of them have in common, implying there's a different stream of copying tradition there. And uh, then there are uh, the the Byzantine texts, uh, which are the basis of the King James Version. They seem to be more corrupt. People added more material, sometimes just a single sentence, sometimes a a little bit more. Uh, And uh, so comparison of the manuscripts is uh, is an empirical process used for it. Though um, it's not the only method, because there is a kind of eclectic approach where you compare the different manuscripts for a single passage you're studying, and uh, you say, well, uh, for instance, um, if they disagree, which one is the most likely original it would be the one that would have created difficulties for scribes. Uh, And uh, whereas they presumably, like they might try to harmonize or simplify or rewrite the text to make it make more sense to the reader. But if uh, if it didn't originally, but if it did, uh, it's not likely they're going to cut out something and create a problem. Now they might though, so this is not ironclad. For instance, um, when in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, whoever is angry with his brother shall be liable to the council and so on. 
Well, a lot of manuscripts, later ones, have whoever is angry with his brother without cause, etc., etc. Well, which way was it? Uh, If it said originally angry with his brother, boy, that's kind of a tough standard to meet. Uh, you sure, uh, a scribe would, and, and w- wouldn't it make sense if somebody wants to soften that blow and some copyist, and as he's writing, he says, well, he, he must have meant this and added without cause. So we figure the more difficult reading is probably going to be the original. Or another one in the Gospel of John where um, Jesus' skeptical brothers are getting ready to go to Jerusalem for the holy day. And they ask Jesus, say, you're not packing, aren't you coming to the feast? I mean, you seem to be uh, trying to get a big reputation. Uh, You Certainly you want to show yourself to your public. And uh, Jesus says, I'm not going to this feast. You can go without me. Then as soon as they're out the door, Jesus gets ready and goes. Why is he lying to them? Uh, well, uh, some people didn't like that, so they figured, eh, something must have been left out. I bet it said, and then they add, uh, I am not going up to this feast yet. Oh, a little later, huh? Uh, And so you see what's going on here. If it originally said, I'm not going to this feast yet, who would have omitted that, uh, getting him in trouble? And so we don't know, right? And and, uh, uh, we just have to wrestle with the inconvenient apparent original. Uh, So uh, those are... You know, there, there is rigorous methodology there, but it's certainly not definitive. And uh, so uh, that's some, some uh, kind of answer, albeit probably hopelessly confusing. Oh, ah, Brian from New Hampshire says, uh, what do you make? Uh, uh, what the heck is my... Yeah. What do you make of the bizarre episode in Exodus 4, 24 through 26? Moses is en route to Egypt when Yahweh shows up intent on smiting our hero, only to change his mind when Mrs. Moses performs an impromptu bris on their son and throws the foreskin at the chosen one's feet. What's up with that? Yeah, what is up with that? Let's go to the text here. And uh, that would be, right, Exodus 4.24. Actually, I think there's a pretty good answer to this. Uh, It doesn't make a whole lot of sense in one way. I mean, it's not historically plausible, but I think it's pretty clear what's going on. Ooh, let's see. Oh, yeah, 24. I'm too high up on the page. At a lodging place on the way, Yahweh met him and sought to kill him. It means tried to kill him. Uh, Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' (coughs) feet with it, often a euphemism for penis, which must be the case here, and said, "Surely, Surely you were a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. Then it was that she said, You were a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Huh? 
what is happening there? Uh, well, the story itself was told without any particular context, and the compiler wanted to use it, especially because it did have a meaning, but there was no other place in the Moses epic where Moses and his wife and son, baby son, are on the road uh, without uh, the old bunch of the children of Israel. It's when they're going into Egypt for the big doings to start, right? So he had to put it in there. Doesn't really fit otherwise, uh, but uh, logically, but chronologically, there's really no other choice. So what was the story in isolation about? Well, there are cultures that have circumcision, but not of infants. They circumcise adolescents, and uh, it's called bridegroom circumcision because it's part of the puberty rite, which marks the uh, transition from childhood to young adulthood and marriageability. Doesn't mean you have to get married immediately, but you're now in the pool of possible grooms. And people often got, well, in our culture, they used to get married a lot earlier than they do now, right? Uh, so, bridegroom circumcision doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Uh, well, Moses had not been circumcised. Is that because he grew up in Egypt? I think the Egyptians did circumcise, so I'm not sure. Uh, again, the history doesn't matter. Uh, what is happening there is she is saying it's like uh, contagious magic. Okay, maybe you can call off the god uh, by um, sort of giving Moses a symbolic bridegroom, that is adult circumcision, by circumcising his infant son and placing the foreskin, like a condom, I guess, onto Moses' penis. Uh, and, uh, okay, you're a bridegroom of blood because that's the original idea, the bridegroom circumcision. Uh, and, uh, and now, okay, Moses wasn't circumcised, but now it counts as if he was. And why? Well, because this story is a ceremonial legend. That is, it was, a, it was told to help people make the transition uh, throughout Israel to stop circumcising infants, uh, I'm sorry, to stop circumcising uh, young, well, adolescent boys and, and switch it to infants. Now, why'd they do that? Uh, well, what was the point of doing with the, uh, infants? Why not just drop the thing? Well, because they were they were substituting circumcision for infant sacrifice of the firstborn, which you have commanded in Exodus. Uh, and in a later passage of Exodus from a different source, it says, well, yeah, you do owe it to God uh, to sacrifice the firstborn son, but he's going to give you a break. You can substitute an animal. Uh, and, uh, and so why circumcision as a substitute? Uh, for the sacrifice of flesh. Well, this is a sacrifice of the flesh of the infant, but only a token sacrifice. It's a case of synecdoche, the part for the whole. And so they, uh, th it was a way of uh, 
getting rid of bridegroom circumcision and infant sacrifice in one blow. And uh, that's it was important, uh, but um, uh, the, there was a similar one with uh, Abraham nearly sacrificing Isaac and being told at the last minute by the angel of Yahweh, hey, hold on. Uh, and uh, and he says, look, th take a look at that that ram over there stuck in the bush. Uh, sacrifice that instead. Well, the point of that was to say, okay, from now on, let's uh, imitate Father Abraham and sacrifice an animal in place of our firstborn son. So you got similar stuff. It's it's all ceremonial precedents, uh, myths that say this is the way God wants it. And uh, to me, that makes a lot of sense. He would have to do some pretty fancy footwork arguing to convince me otherwise. So it's possible. Let's see. All right, uh, Brian, I hope that was okay. Good question from a New Hampshire man. Oh, or is this Brian? Oh, boy, I thought I had these things attached right. Maybe this one's Brian's. I'm sorry. Uh, Oh, that one, I'm sorry, that one was from Jay Lee. Okay, this is from Brian, so let's do the accent again. I was recently listening to a Richard Carrier debate, and he suggested that the origins of Christianity may have come from educated Jews of the time. Was Peter as stupid or illiterate as we are told? Was it used to make the Jesus story seem more miraculous? Um, I... You do. Uh, what does that mean here? Well, anyway, um, yeah, I, I think that is, th this is a common trope, you might say, in apologetics of various religions. Muhammad is supposed to be the great fountainhead of Islamic prophecy. But if it's prophecy, it, it doesn't come from him necessarily, right? He's just the mouthpiece. He is receiving dictation from the angel Gabriel, who is reading off the contents of the mother of the book, the heavenly Quran, which is eternal. And uh, so he's, he's an oracle, uh, Muhammad is. And, uh, oh, let's see, this fits the cultural context because uh, in pre-Islamic Arabia and probably thereafter too, they had uh, uh, kahins. Arabic is a cognate language with Hebrew and uh, kohen or priest in Hebrew uh, is also denoted priest. Uh, and uh, you could be both at the same time or one or the other. And it means the same thing as kahin in Arabic, which came to have pretty much exclusively the idea of an oracular poet. Uh, uh, there were stories where some guy, no particular poetic in inclination, would just suddenly fall to the ground and start flailing about and foaming at the mouth. Uh, but then he would snap out of it and begin to recite poetic oracles of, uh, of, of poetry. It was sort of divinely inspired by, by the jinn, the genies, uh, the, the not yet understood as demons, as in Islam, but uh, like uh, spirits and so on. And uh, so 
the prophet was merely a mouthpiece. This is why in turn-of-the-century Pentecostalism, Pentecostals ordained women as well as men because they spoke prophetically and they figured, well, the Holy Spirit's neither male nor female. It hardly matters whether you are if you're going to be the mouthpiece for the Holy Spirit. Uh, yeah, that's the proper logic of the matter. Now, the... Uh, in, in the case of, of uh, Jesus and Peter and Joseph Smith and no doubt others, you had somebody who was known not to have been educated in these matters. And surprisingly, they show a lot of wisdom in religious things. Now, Peter doesn't before Pentecost, right? He's just a well-meaning dullard, basically. But afterward, what does it say? He's filled with the Holy Spirit and speaks the gospel boldly. Well, yeah, that's and, and as a result, when he's uh, speechifying before the Sanhedrin, they all say, isn't this guy just a Galilean hick? Uh, how could he be so eloquent? Uh, the same thing is said of Jesus. He's in Jerusalem, and they say, uh, where did he get this learning? Uh, he, he never studied that we know of. Joseph Smith. Oh, the guy was just an illiterate. Uh, it's just a hick. Uh, he couldn't have just created the Book of Mormon. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, but that's it. always, it's the same thing. You see, it had to have been God because the, the prophet was uh, too much of a dope uh, in his own right. And uh, that, of course, that's... Uh, that's just based on uh, propagandistic apologetics already in Scripture. Uh, but I think that you are exactly right. It was The theme was used to make the Jesus story seem more miraculous, right? Hey, greetings from Luther, Dr. Price. I recently picked up Karen Armstrong's Islam, A Short History, from a little free library in my neighborhood with free being roughly the ceiling for what I'd spend on one of her books, which from what I can tell are mostly arguments for ecumenical comedy, if not comedy. I know he says comedy with a T. Uh, that's all well and good, but they just are not the kind of information I'm usually looking for. In the first paragraph of the first page of the book after the introduction, timeline, etc., Armstrong writes that before the birth of Islam, some pagan Arabs already believed their high god was the same god of the monotheistic faiths, but, quote, the Jews and Christians whom they met often taunted the Arabs for being left out of the divine plan. Is that, end of quote, is that true? Do we have examples of Christians and Jews taunting Arabs for having been given no prophets, revelations, etc.? While Armstrong provides a couple, literally two pages of endnotes for the book, this assertion has no citation. Um, yeah, uh, let me pause there. I don't know. I mean, she could be right, but there certainly is the motif in the Quran that Arabs were without benefit of revelation of their own, that God had spoken to Jews and Christians, and they didn't doubt that he had, right? That they were, they uh, said that they were the fulfillment of that line of revelation. But uh, why didn't God speak to an Arab um, prophet? 
uh, and uh, provide an, uh, this Arabic Quran, as it says. Uh, why didn't, I mean, they eventually translated the Bible into Arabic, but uh, they may not even have done it yet in the time of the Quran. I believe I've read that. And um, so there was the idea that, you know, God had held out on them. And, and finally, we've got an Arabic scripture. Uh, but I don't know if that was a result of uh, ridicule from members of the other faiths. I wouldn't put it past them, right? There are a lot of jerks in any religion uh, who just try, you know, they, it's as if they were trying to make their religion as repulsive as they could. Uh, so that's a, that's a dumb argument. Uh, but uh, they, I wouldn't be surprised if people had uh, mocked them for that. But... Uh, we do hear elsewhere in the Quran of what mockers said. Um, more than once, it says that the reaction to Muhammad's prophesying was, this is plain magic, or nothing but magic. Uh, and uh, Or if they think it's fake, let them produce a, a, a poetic couplet like it. Uh, and, um, oh... Uh, your compatriot is not mad, nor is this an utterance of some accursed devil. Uh, but it, in, as far as I know, it, it, as I remember, I've read the Quran four times in different translations. Uh, I, I mean, in its entirety, I, I don't happen to remember that that was one of the scoffing retorts. Maybe it was, though. I certainly want to read it again. Uh, and maybe I'll find I'm wrong, but um, th there is that sense of self-consciousness and deprivation now remedied. So who knows? Maybe they were patient all that time. Uh, there were uh, apparently pre-Islamic monotheists, and uh, some of them must have become uh, Muslims. Uh, let's see, uh, and Luther says, speaking of ecumenism, I just finished your new Judaizing Jesus and enjoyed it tremendously. I couldn't recommend it more to fans of your work and the show. Now, what the heck is that book about, you might be asking? Well, I, I'm waiting for somebody to, to uh, gripe that I'm anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish, uh, both of which are the last things I am. Uh, I love Jews and Judaism. If I were to convert to any religion, it would probably be Judaism. But um, what I'm attacking here is um, this ecumenical orthodoxy uh, of, um, of, of critical scholars, supposedly critical, who say, they, they rightly point out the fallacy of... Um, of, of various scholars like uh, Kazeman and uh, whose work I love otherwise, uh, Kazeman and uh, Stauffer and others, who said that Jesus was just repudiating Judaism and starting a new religion. That, that just does not seem to me to be backed up by the text. Of course, it's very difficult to know what a historical Jesus may actually have said. And that gets into this, too, because these ecumenical liberal critics uh, are trying to maximize the amount of, of Jesus material in the Gospels that we can now consider historical. 
uh, earlier critics like Norman Perrin and Bultmann and others used the criterion of dissimilarity. They said, any time you find something attributed to Jesus, I'm saying uh, that uh, he has in common with uh, the rabbis, the safest bet is that somebody has misattributed something to Jesus. I mean, that happened all the time. Uh, Rabbi Jacob Neusner pointed out how frequently you find the same saying attributed to several different rabbis in the Mishnah. Um, and uh, it implies somebody couldn't keep it straight or wanted their rabbi to get the credit, etc. Uh, okay, and uh, and they uh, they said he Jesus might have said it, but what is? Why are we studying what Jesus said? Don't we want to know what was distinctive about him? I mean, is it, is it really uh, worth doing to show that you know, Jesus was yeah, just a Jew of his time, uh, that he was another Rabbi Akiva or something? Well, I guess that would be worth showing, but uh, you know, that, that's not really a Christian position in any traditional sense. They also, these critics said that uh, uh, if Jesus is accredited with some rule or a doctrine or saying that you also find in, like, the epistles, uh, or, uh, you know, from other early Christians, uh, you can't be sure that he said that because there certainly was a tendency to credit uh, prophecies of the risen Christ to the earthly Jesus. So uh, who knows? I mean, as David Oliver Smith points out, there's a bunch of things in the epistles uh, that uh, wind up being credited to Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, so the criterion of dissimilarity, he might have said it, granted. We don't know that he didn't, but what is it that's distinctive about Jesus? Well, these guys, the, these liberal ecumenical scholars like Charles Worth and uh, Bruce Chilton and Sean Frayne and uh, a bunch of other ones, uh, they are basically saying, Nah, there's no reason to doubt that Jesus said that with the result that Jesus is now much less controversial. Uh, he's really a Jew, not a Christian, uh, and uh, not really the founder of Christianity. That must have been Paul or somebody. And I, I think that uh, what I try to show in this book is that their arguments are exceedingly lame, uh, and both arguments for crediting all this stuff the maximum amount, maximum amount of it to Jesus, uh, or interpreting these texts in a way that makes sense only in light of Mishnaic stuff that is never hinted at in the text. It's just bogus. It seems to me somebody is trying to make a Jesus usable for ecumenical dialogue. Now, I happen to be all in favor of ecumenical dialogue. I love that stuff, interreligious dialogue, and, uh, fertilization of ideas across the boundaries of the faiths. But this is a different matter. Uh, this is a question of uh, are they simply proof texting Jesus? Are they really um, doing a search for the historical Jesus? Or is it, as I like to call it, the ecumenical golem? So I recommend the, the book. And then I, I give you uh, oh, at least four alternatives. Well, Price, if you say, and he wasn't some sort of a rabbi or Hasid or whatever, what the heck was he? I said, well, he might have been this, that, this, and that. Uh, take your pick. 
Okay, fun stuff. Now, this is going to be the last one because it is exceedingly long, and I don't have a whole lot to say about it, but uh, uh, here we go. Uh, it's quite clever and, you, and deserves a hearing. This is from Stav. He says, was Joseph really a woman? Um, uh, let's see. <laughs> Number zero. According to some rabbinic slash Kabbalistic sources, Joseph was supposed to be a girl, but his gender was changed in the womb. In my view, this tidbit only makes sense if the rabbis were countering an earlier well-known story where Joseph was a woman and the gender switching explained away some anomalies or told the people that the folk, uh, uh, that the folk tale they've known wasn't all garbage, having some facts right and some wrong. Alternatively, the Kabbalists could have arrived at the same conclusion independently and tried to mask it. One, his name doesn't celebrate him, but asks for an addition, a son. Uh, the word another could easily have been added later. Two, Jacob's love for Joseph or Josepha in parenthesis, is well explained by a girl reminding a father of a mother, Rachel, love transferred to Benjamin after Joseph is gone. Three, Joseph's beauty and cloak are very feminine features. Which other men in the Torah are described as beautiful and as fancy dressers? For in Joseph's dreams, stars, sun, and moon bow to him. In this scenario, Joseph is earth, usually symbolic of femininity. In another dream, grain bows again. Here it is less obvious. Are they bowing to earth again or something masculine like a sickle? Five, none of the brothers except Reuben should have any reason to hate Joseph for his possible future lordship over them. Someone had to rule over them, and they would only care if they had to bow to a woman instead of a man. Surprisingly, Reuben doesn't hate Joseph and actually tries to save him slash her. They might object to being subservient to the youngest son among them, though. Uh, there, I don't think there's any problem to be solved. I'm, I'm interrupting, obviously. Uh, it makes it pretty clear they're just sick of this boastful brat. Hey, you guys, I, get a load of this. You're going to love this one. I am going, I'm like the, uh, the, the earth and all of you and our parents are going to be bowing before me. Uh, uh, you see, uh, dad likes me best. I don't know if he gave any of you an amazing... Technicolor dream coat, but he sure gave one to me. I mean, they said, this brat, I'm sick of him. Let's, let's get the hell rid of him. I, I don't know that you have to look very far beyond that. Okay, six, Joseph isn't killed. The Torah has men killing men slash brothers, Cain and Abel, and men being afraid of being killed by men slash brothers, Jacob and Esau, but also Abraham and Isaac, both in a sacrificial manner and uh, in Egypt slash Philistia. 
However, no women are actually killed or even threatened with death. Women are not even threatened in slavery in Egypt. Additionally, men in Sodom refuse to violate women. Basically, it feels like women do not have to fear violent death in Genesis. Uh, Miriam, uh, seven, Miriam, a female, is the only one punished for bad-mouthing in the Torah. Is it fair to assume that spreading rumors and gossiping were considered female pursuits? Joseph is guilty of giving negative reports, you know, tattling on his brothers to Jacob. Eight, Joseph is clearly juxtaposed with Judah. Judah is a man who makes a couple of bad decisions in regard to Tamar, publicly admitting them later. He also loses his coat and staff, very masculine, and gets it back. Uh, Joseph never admits his mistakes uh, when he loses his two coats. Uh, I'm losing my place here. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, when he uh, loses his two coats, he never gets them back. He gets a third instead put on him by someone else. In fact, all three of Joseph's coats are given to him by someone else. Nine, sorceress is feminine in the Torah, as in, don't let one live in your midst. You know, I shall not allow a witch to live. In Egypt, sorcerers were men, and maybe that's where Joseph had to pretend to be a man. Anyways, Torah was written for Israelite audiences, and in Israel, it looks like, uh, sorceresses were women. 10. Potiphar's wife's desire to remove Joseph from her household makes more sense as a fit of jealousy. Sarah and Hagar. Knowing Egyptian distaste for Asiatics, it's harder to believe her lust than her jealousy. Uh, 11. The only valid reason for Jacob to adopt Ephraim and Manasseh is because they're his daughter's sons and wouldn't otherwise inherit. Remember the place of territory was allotted by lot. A piece of territory, I guess, was allotted by lot, but the size by... Uh, huh? Uh, but the size by population. Thus, Joseph as a man would have had as much territory, as much progeny uh, as Ephraim and Manasseh would have produced. Additionally, Jacob must have learned his lesson by now to have no favorites. 12. The Potiphar slash Potipharah affair. Uh, where Joseph marries the daughter of a man whose name is almost identical to that of his former slave master, might be the reason this tale was reimagined. Sages couldn't have Joseph marrying a pagan priest with, uh, after his jealous wife is gone. I guess that's assuming that uh, Potiphar and Potiphar are the same guy. Um... Uh, yeah, so they made Joseph marry the pagan priest's daughter. 13. Jacob's other daughter, Dinah, supposedly marries Shimon or Simeon. 
both are seen in a negative light and both basically disappear from the record. Shimon being absorbed into Judah. Uh, by the way, Gunter Luling believed that uh, Simeon was absorbed into the Ishmaelite uh, tribe. I forget why. Anyway, um, Levi and Shimon are called a pair, but Levi goes on to success and priesthood. Dinah and Josepha are also a pair by virtue of being the only two daughters. Dana disappears while Josepha goes on to success with two tribes issuing from her. Josepha also marries a priest, a Levi equal. Thus, two pairs are created, the negative Shimon and Dinah, and the positive Levi and Josepha. I would venture to say that Reuben was supposed to inherit his father's harem as the firstborn. He makes a play for it, but a bit too early. Uh, you know, with uh, Tamar. Uh, while S uh, Shimon and Levi were supposed to marry the two daughters as the second oldest, Dinah and Josepha have something else in common. They venture out with negative consequences. Theoretically, Dinah had a chance to be a princess in Shechem, but she went out without permission um, and got raped. Right? And on the other hand, Josepha was sent on an errand, eventually becoming something like royalty. 14. Joseph is the only one of Jacob's children buried in Israel, the home of the Israelites. Uh, in the Torah, women are called the house of Israel. Was she carried out in order to establish a home to assure future additions? 15. Joseph crying in Genesis 42, 24, 43, 30, 45, 2, 42, 14, 42, 15, 46, 29, 5, 1, and uh, 50, 17. I wonder if you mean 50, verse 1, and 50, 17. Sorry if I left out any more instances. 16, the Getty Museum, I guess, recently bought the Rothschild Pentateuch Torah and Torah and Rashi manuscript from 1296. It is dated. In this page, I uh, don't know the Hebrew word here, is written oddly. The pay sofit has no legs, so it looks like a tay something. Uh, see, 17. There should be a structure to the fairy tale. Events on the downward trajectory must correspond to the events on the upward trajectory. For example, two girls can't produce tribes, but Ephraim and Manasseh replace the deficit. Also, having one negative example of Dinah is not proper. Dinah needs a positive counterpart, like Shimon has Levi, like Reuben has Judah. Um... Uh, Stav, I have to admit, I don't find these arguments very substantial. Uh, I, I don't find them convincing, and yet I want to suggest to you that this is the kind of thing you could make into a dissertation. Uh, I, I mean, I am not the judge of it. 
uh, you're you're sharing it with the Bible Geek audience, which I appreciate, and with me, and I appreciate it. I don't happen to buy it, but others might well see it differently. I sure wouldn't be surprised. And I would encourage you to see, I, I don't know if you're in grad school or whatever, but um, th this is uh, well worth developing, and uh, it might be that um, you could uh, make a, a book and submit it to a publisher and have it uh, published, and I, I would look into that. Uh, you're, you're obviously sharp-eyed and uh, very agile in your uh, treatment of the text, and so I hope you'll consider that. Oh, let's see. Uh, how about one from uh, Mark Frobaum? Uh, uh, let's see. I'm struggling with the idea that the Paul character diverged from a Simon Magus-type character into the more Petrine character found in Acts, don't you know? Uh, the, uh, the only familiar paradigms I can turn to are those like that of Solomon Grundy and the Hulk, or Kara Supergirl, and Kara Captain Marvel Danvers. Carol Danvers. These characters seem to have begun as divergent characters with coincidental similarities and then converged and diverged again over time according to the theological needs of their editors. Are there better examples of this in literature or the Bible, eh? Oh, let's see, Mark. Uh, um, Paul and Simon Magus. Ah, uh, the where one is the basis. Um, hmm. That's interesting. Um, where do we see? Biblical or other characters with some similarities becoming identified and then split off. Um, oh, let's see. Well, Captain Marvel, the original, um, Billy Batson, he was obviously a copy of Superman, right? And uh, so close that... Uh, DC Comics successfully sued Fawcett Comics and with uh, you know infringement and won and so uh, Captain Marvel yeah okay um, retired into uh, the Hall of Fame Marvel then some years later created their own Captain Marvel Marvel of the Cree in fact. As it happens, I, I have a action figure of each one of them here at the desk. Um, and uh, Marvel wasn't a whole lot like uh, uh, Sh Shazam, but he became more like him when they changed his costume and uh, from a green and white one to a red and black one. And uh, he and and he then he was exi exiled somehow to the negative zone, but he could come back out of it when he switched places with teenager Rick Jones, and this was pretty obviously an intentional um, mimicking of the Fawcett Captain Marvel. Billy Batson becomes the adult 
Captain Marvel, the teenager Rick Jones um, switches places with Marvel of the Cree. Both those guys now have largely red costumes. Uh, but then later on, uh, well, uh, DC began publishing the Billy Batson Captain Marvel in the 70s with some of the original artists and so on. And um, I guess not long after that, Marvel's character, Marvel of the Cree, dies of cancer. Uh, and uh, this is one of the big deaths that happened before everybody was dying and resurrecting left and right, as today in the comics. Uh, so uh, he gets replaced by a female Captain Marvel, Monica Rambo, who is like a being of light who can solidify into physical form. Uh, and then uh, they changed her name eventually to Pulsar. Uh, and uh, she was sort of a bit player after that. But um, Marvell's earthly girlfriend, Carol Danvers, somehow absorbed the Cree powers of Marvell and became Ms. Marvel, and later took on the name Warbird, but then went back to uh, Ms. Marvel. And uh, she now briefly, in a much later storyline, Marvell rose from the dead along with a bunch of others, but only temporarily. And once he um, died again, she decided, Carol Danvers decided, to take up the title Captain Marvel. So that would be an example of where you have um, similar characters that are almost or actually identified, but then split off in, in increasingly different modes. Uh, Marvel uh, even eventually changed the faucet Captain Marvel into Shazam, originally the name of the wizard who gave uh, Billy Batson his power, so that might be one. Oh, let's see. Uh, Uh, Solomon Grundy and the Hulk, that's interesting. Um, Grundy was a swamp monster, kind of analogous to the Heap, or the later Swamp Thing, or, or the still later uh, Man Thing. But he wasn't just, you know, a bunch of swamp mud with tentacles like the other guys. Uh, he was huge. Um, very uh, powerful and, and dead white skin and tattered uh, uh, black clothing. He had been a, a mobster who was killed and thrown into the swamp and somehow uh, the, uh, the chemicals in the swamp brought him back to life as this hulking goon. Now this was a couple of decades before the Hulk ever saw the light of day. And Solomon Grundy was... Um, uh, a villain. He, I think, started out as Green Lantern's uh, foe. Uh, eventually, menaced almost everybody. Well, then the Hulk uh, was born of a gamma blast. He was trying to save Rick Jones, who stupidly 
um, was showing how brave he was by going out in his jalopy with his guitar into a testing ground uh, to impress his friends, even though he didn't know there was a bomb about to explode. It's just ticking away, minutes to go, and Bruce Banner sees this idiot going out onto the field and runs to stop him. It's almost exactly like what happens in the beginning of The Amazing Colossal Man. I have a hunch that was the inspiration for it, that, that old 50s movie. And, uh, and he manages to uh, toss Rick Jones behind a dune or something into safety, but he is, gets the full force of a gamma bomb exploding. Uh, amazingly, doesn't kill him, but uh, that night he turns into the Hulk. Uh, and in the beginning, it was every night he would turn into the Hulk. Uh, and uh, later on, it was when he would be upset. They kept changing it. His skin was gray to begin with, which is a little closer to Solomon Grundy. But in the second issue, became green uh, forever after. Right? And uh, so uh, he... Uh, they don't really have similar origins, but they become the same sort of characters. Uh, but quickly, the Hulk becomes a good guy, uh, but is treated like a bad guy. Everybody's hounding him and so on. And, uh, oh, let's see. Grundy, as far as I know, never does. So there's a similarity. They almost become identical, white skin, gray skin, uh, hugely muscled juggernaut and then uh, one becomes a hero and one becomes a villain uh, I guess that would be uh, an example of that uh, uh, you might think Wonder Woman and the cheetah might have been an example of that um, hmm. Batman and Prometheus from the 90s I'm sure there are others. It's an interesting question. Now, if I can remember, maybe I'll think about it some more. Uh, and see. Okay, one more time. Uh, this is David from Newcastle, Australia, but instead of doing the Crocodile Dundee voice, can you do a Commander Wharf from Star Trek, please? In a recent episode, you were asked about the certain women who followed the apostles and supported them financially. Where does this, what does this tell us about the honor, I mean the status of women at that time? I had assumed first century women were sort of living uh, under a Taliban-like regime, and they were socially and financially dependent on their husbands or fathers, but it sounds like these certain women were quite autonomous and had their own money. Dr. Bob, what do we really know about the status of women in the New, in New Testament times? Uh, well, uh, some women were, especially Roman women, had their own money. Uh, and, uh, and there were various rich women that were autonomous, slightly later than the biblical period, women who embraced consecrated celibacy, um, if they were wealthy, could support a commune of, of ascetic women in their homes. And uh, so they were independently wealthy and free of domestic time, uh, ties, and so on. Um, uh, we are often told that 
in Judaism, in biblical times, women were segregated and bound to the house. Uh, Philo says that they lived in the inner room of the house and uh, avoided being seen by, uh, by anybody in public. But others have pointed out that uh, uh, Kathleen Corley, a brilliant friend of mine of the Jesus Seminar, she said, uh, it's not like ancient uh, Judah was Saudi Arabia, much less the Taliban. Uh, if you weren't rich, everybody in the family did have to work and go to the market and stuff like that. In fact, take a look at Proverbs 31, which is at least a couple of centuries earlier than the New Testament. Uh, it speaks of the, uh, the perfect wife she conducts business, uh, she's seen outside the home, etc. And so it, it can't have been as restrictive as it's become in, uh, in certain ultra-strict um, Islamic uh, societies. Uh, keep in mind in Saudi Arabia, the, um, it's ruled by the Wahhabi sect, which is ultra-strict. Now, maybe everybody has to publicly toe the mark on that, but uh, that wasn't the way it was as far as we know. Um, Philo apparently was talking about uh, those who could afford it may have sheltered their women, possibly because if they were living amidst Gentiles, they didn't trust Gentiles to uh, respect their women. I, I don't know if that's why or not, but Philo is uh, very likely saying he must he was wealthy this is the way good jews should um have uh, protect their women from others and all that not that it was necessarily that way in fact uh, usually you don't start saying the way it ought to be if that's the way it actually was uh, so th there were a variety of uh, stations in life and and, and it does make it clear in Luke 9, I think, that these women who Mark also has show up at the cross, uh, they were um, bankrolling Jesus and the disciples. The, the, um, and one of them, we're told, was a noblewoman married to Chusa, who was a, a relative or a friend or an employee of Herod Antipas. And... Uh, that's uh, and apparently she had left him to follow Jesus, which is why Herod wanted him dead, um, according to Luke. But that certainly implies they they had money, and uh, this was not an uncommon thing in the ancient world. Wealthy women uh, were attracted to exotic religions and uh, and did support uh, the the guru of their choice, the uh, juvenile J U V. E-N-A-L, a Roman satirist, uh, pokes fun at women in his sixth satire, where he talks about their penchant for, uh, for new uh, religions and cults. That presupposes. Uh, he also uh, ridicules women for being smarter than him, that uh, they're always making remarks at dinner parties about uh, uh, etymology, word origins and stuff, uh, embarrassing men. So, you know, there were, uh, oh, and, there, and there were courtesans, uh, heteri, who were prostitutes and made a lot of money 
and if and that would fit with Mary Magdalene as one of the female supporters of Jesus. Uh, she must have, if as I think the traditional view is true, that she's supposed to have been a reformed prostitute, uh, that would certainly fit there. Uh, so uh, not all women uh, were, were poverty-stricken and stuck in the kitchen. Okay, and... Uh, oh... Okay, th this will be the last from Tom Shannon. Um, I'm not sure if this is grist for the Bible geek or not. If I'm totally off here and I'm possibly harassing you, please let me know. No way, never. I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, these a few pericopes I wrote a couple of years ago as an exercise. Oh, this is longer than I thought. Well, what the heck. I think I'm going to wait on this. This is quite long. I, I just read the beginning and thought that was the whole thing. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, this looks really good. He he has done the same thing I did once uh, and uh, as an assignment for my students, creating a bunch of uh, pericopes in Bible style. So I'm going to have a lot of fun with this on the next episode. And I hope you'll be with me on that. In the meantime, happy Advent, Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, unless it's over by now. I can't keep up with anything. And uh, I hope Santa is uh, good to you. Uh, if you're a diabolist, I guess I should say, I hope Satan is good to you. Okay. I'll see you next time on the next thrill-packed episode of The Bible Geek. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.